Church, it is a, a blessing to be with you here today. I have greatly appreciated our partnership in the gospel, specifically as this local embassy of the king that we have been singing about this morning sent out the Tiptons to Japan, Lord willing to see another embassy of the king one day, according to his will, be established there in Japan. I appreciate your pastor so much and his friendship. He's been a dear friend to me over these last few years as we've gotten to know each other more. And uh, I found myself uniquely as someone from Toronto cheering on the Phillies last night. Um, he says, amen, miracles do happen. My first engagement with the Phillies was in 1992 in the World Series. Was it 92 or 93? I forget. 93. We won both. So they kind of muddled together. But uh, it was just a, a phenomenal memory as a young boy with Mitch Williams on the mound and Joe Carter at the plate. And uh, it, was, it was weird cheering for the Phillies last night. But Raymond, thank you for the partnership we have in the gospel. And uh, the gospel does many, many things, including reconciling Blue Jays fans and Phillies fans. <laughs> it's a privilege to be with you today and to preach from God's word. We'll be in Psalm 97 today, page 499 in your pew Bibles. King Xerxes has been referred to as the Persian king of kings. The historian Herodotus details a scene in 480 BC where Xerxes assembled with his army of over one million men on the Asian side of the Hellespont, which was this body of water that separated Persia from Greece. There was no bridge to pass over the water, so Xerxes made two of them. One stretched out over 360 boats that were fastened together, and another stretched out over 314 boats. Earlier attempts had failed to construct this bridge, and the builders who failed were beheaded. And historians say that Xerxes actually had the waters whipped in punishment. It took seven days to move the army ultimately over these two bridges. And in the months ahead, Xerxes and his armies, they would drink the rivers dry. The camels that carried the supplies were eaten by lions. 300 Spartans famously held up the Persian army for a few crucial days at the pass at Thermopylae. The mighty Persian king of kings couldn't split the waters at Hellespont. He couldn't move mountains. He couldn't provide water to his men when they needed it most. And he couldn't close the mouths of lions. Eventually, the Greeks diverted, uh, defeated the Persians in the Bay of Salamis. And demoralized Xerxes returned home to Persia. Eight years after his retreat, a Greek play depicted his return to the, grief of, uh, to the grief of the Persians who once praised him. And there his ghost, again it's a play, his ghost of his father warns him, saying, never being mortal ought we to cast our thoughts too high. The Persian king of kings, the most powerful man in the world of his day, chastened by death, Defeated by waters, thwarted by mountains, routed by the Greeks, being warned to not bite off more than he could chew. Again, our passage today is Psalm 97. Let's read starting in verse 1. The Lord reigns. 
Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick righteousness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. This is the word of the Lord. I think the main point of this passage is that as Christians, we serve a glorious and righteous king. So we should be glad and rejoice. We could divide this psalm into three different sections, and those three sections will serve as my points this morning. In the first section, from verses 1 to 6, we see God's glory described. In the second section, from verses 7 to 9, we see two different effects of God's glory being revealed. And in the third and final section, from verses 10 to 12, we see a call to the present, in the present. So number one, God's glory described. The psalm starts with a call for the earth to rejoice and for the coastlands to be glad. Why? Because the Lord reigns. His reign isn't confined to one particular people or place. So the whole earth is called to rejoice. People in the far reaches of the world, in the remote islands of the world, in the coastlands of, say, Japan, be glad in the Lord. From verses 2 to 5, we see a number of physical displays of God's glory as it is revealed in the world, to the world, in nature. And as we read these lines... I'm sure your mind will remember places throughout Scripture where we see similar things. So in verse 2, we see the clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Friends, God's glory is so infinitely great that it must be obscured and hidden for our sake. Think about that for a moment. God's glory is so great that in its fullness, it cannot be revealed to you. So throughout the Bible, we read of God's glorious presence being surrounded by a cloud. In Exodus 13, verse 21, we read of the Lord going before the people of Israel to lead them by day in a pillar of cloud. And his presence with the people of Israel was visible by that cloud. God's glory was covered with smoke on the Mount of Sinai as he met with Moses in Exodus 19. 
In Exodus 33, Moses famously asks the Lord to show him his glory. And the, res- the Lord responds by saying, you can't see my face. Because if you did see my face, you would not live. So Moses goes stand by that lo- rock and my glory will pass by you and I will put you into the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand. And as I pass by, I will remove my hand and you can see my back. In the next chapter, we read that the face of Moses was shining when he came down from Sinai because he saw the back of God. Imagine what it would have physically done to Moses had he seen God's face. Our God is glorious. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. In verse 2, we also read that righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Our God sits on a throne. We cannot see him because his glory is covered. And even so, we have confidence in the actions of our God because of who he is. The world has had its share of tyrannical monarchs and leaders. We could walk through human history and point out men like Nebuchadnezzar, some of the Caesars. We can think of the most recent century and talk about men like Stalin and Hitler and Saddam Hussein and so many others. We know what tyrannical leaders look like. Even though we can't see our king, Christians, we can have complete and utter confidence in his rules and decrees. He is not like the world's leaders. How can we have this confidence? Well, we can, we can have this confidence because we know that God's reign is just and right. God is sovereign ruler of the world. As creator of the world, he rules over the world. And as creator of the world, he has the right to decree whatever he desires. And he has the sovereign power to make it so. Because he is unchanging, we never have to worry about God's laws and decrees changing. There are no amendments to the law of God or to his constitution. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And today's definition of justice in God's kingdom is exactly the same as it was in Eden thousands of years ago. And it will always be the same forevermore because our God does not change. It is the same a thousand years ago. He is not an unfair king. Evil will not go unpunished. Why? Because righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. In verse 3, we read that fire goes up before him and burns up his adversaries all around. Friends, the fires of God's judgment are not arbitrary, nor do they punish anyone undeserving of God's punishment. There are no wrongful convictions from a perfectly righteous and just king. God never gets it wrong. Raymond and I had the privilege several months ago to meet a man who had been imprisoned down in Louisiana for decades. And his story is being published 
I think in the next couple of months, by a, a, a brother named Matt Martins. This man imprisoned wrongly for decades. That does not happen in God's kingdom. Ever. He doesn't get anything wrong. So when God punishes, it is a punishment coming from a perfectly just and righteous king. And the fire that burns is a fire that is directly aimed at those who oppose God's rule. In Genesis 19, the Lord rains down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he was perfectly righteous and just in doing so. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 22, God responds to the people of Israel for their rebellion against his reign and says this, A fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and it sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. God had made himself known to the people of Israel. He had made them his chosen people. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And how did they respond? They turned to idols. And so he uses the words, a fire is kindled by my anger. Again, a righteous and just fire. In verse 4, we read that his lightnings light up the world and the earth sees and trembles. Because of what I do for a living, I spend a lot of time in planes, hunks of aluminum, going hundreds of miles an hour through the sky, 30,000 feet up in the air. And I am afraid of heights, which is hilarious to me that people are always stunned by that because they're like, you're so tall, you're afraid of heights? <laughs> and I would just like to point out, I'm 6'6", so even if you're 5'6", I'm only a foot taller than you. And when we're talking about 30,000 feet up in the air, my extra 12 inches don't matter that much. So I spent a lot of time in planes, and nothing in my air travel, even more than the height, makes me nervous like lightning. Or awestruck as lightning. How I feel about lightning depends about on my proximity to that lightning. And as I was reflecting on this specific verse, I thought about two specific flights that I was taking recently. The first one, I was traveling to Kansas City for a conference, and we were flying at about 30,000 feet through the Midwest, and I looked out my window, and miles, we're talking probably 100 miles, 50, 100 miles out, I could see this amazing lightning storm. I took out my iPhone, I pulled up Apple Music, and I put on classical music because it was just this unbelievable fireworks show in the sky. And I thought, this needs like Beethoven as its soundtrack. <laughs> and it was beautiful and glorious. And I was praising God as I saw just the marvel of this lightning. That was flight number one. Flight number, number two, I was not up in the air and the lightning was not 50 to 100 miles away. I was on the tarmac in Detroit. And again, being a, a traveler like I am, you get to watch flight attendants and see how they react, and you get to hear the tone of pilots' voices time and time again. And so when something's wrong or they're nervous about something, you can kind of pick it up. So I'm sitting on the tarmac, and I'm watching pilot, the, the pilot kind of scurry into the cockpit. I'm hearing the flight attendants talk nervously amongst themselves. And I look out my window, and it's like a green cloud 
that's coming in. Again, I'm not a meteorologist. But green clouds do not, they don't look good. They're foreboding. I don't think they mean well as they're rolling in. And I thought, okay, they're going to deplane us. Oh, no. We separate from the gate and start backing out onto the runway. I was not putting on Beethoven at this time. I was in stunned silence, and I was praying to the Lord as the, the clouds started rolling in. The pilot makes this announcement that we're going to speed up our departure. The flight attendants take their, their seats. We're in this long line of planes taxing down the runway, and the clouds are rolling in. And then we took off. And I gripped my seat for what felt like an hour or so, but I think it was only a few minutes. And I was acutely aware of what damage could do to a plane. Now, I have met pilots, and they tell me that there's these special apparatuses on planes that disseminate the lightning and move the current around the plane, and you're safe. But I have also been on YouTube and have seen <laughs> the destruction that happens when lightning hits planes. I'm not convinced. Now, friends, in all seriousness, you can probably think of storms in your life that you physically have seen and had some of those same impulses. Lightning can cause us to be awestruck, and it can cause us to tremble. Our response to the very same storm can vary depending on our proximity and our vantage point. When the Lord was talking to Moses on Sinai in Exodus 20, we see that the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning, and they heard the sound of the trumpet, and they saw the mountain smoking. They were afraid, and they trembled, and they stood far off. I imagine somebody saw that same lightning storm from a great distance away, and they could have remarked on how beautiful it was. They were so far away, they couldn't see anything or hear anything, just lightning. The people who were in closer proximity were afraid and trembled. Friends, God's glory is both something to be in awe of in its transcendence, but it's also something that we should tremble at because of the sheer magnitude of it in its imminence. Our fourth picture from nature in this psalm is in verse 5. It says, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord. When the Lord decrees something, it will surely come to pass because he makes that decree as a sovereign king. History is full of kingdoms that rise, appear to threaten the lives of God's people, and just as quickly, they melt away in the providence of God's decree. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome, number of places today where it's illegal to be a Christian. And in each time, each one of these man-made kingdoms, built like a mountain, welt away like wax before the Lord. The Persian king of kings and his one and a half million men were held up at the Battle of Thermopylae because he couldn't move the mountain. Our God can move mountains from here to there. Cloud and thick darkness, fire, lightning, mountains melting. Four incredible pictures of the glory of God on display. 
We see these incredible pictures of God's glory in the Old Testament. And as we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we see God's glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ. John 1 writes, we read, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Apart from the saving work of Christ, we rightly deserve the wrath of a glorious God, friends. To truly understand the glory of Jesus, we must understand what he rescued us from. We must understand what sin truly is. I love this quote from John Piper. When describing sin, he calls it the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured. Friends, it's the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected. It's the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. God's glory was on full display as Jesus came to earth to save us from our sin. When he was born, angels appeared to shepherds out in the field. In Luke 2, we read of a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Look with me at verse 6 at our verse today. What does it say? The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Jesus displayed his glory and power throughout his whole ministry. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He physically changed the chemical composition of water, turning it into wine. He fed the hungry multitude with a few fish and loaves. He walked on water. He calmed storms. His glory was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus ascended with Peter and James and John. And we read in Matthew 17 that Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun, glory. And his clothes became white as light, glory. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus and a bright cloud overshadowed them echoes of this psalm. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. His glory was revealed on the cross where Jesus paid the penalty for our rebellion. Even as we rebelled against him, our king laid down his life. And because the father rules and reigns in perfect righteousness and justice, perfect righteousness and justice were carried on the cross. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, where you're fighting still the earthly effects of your sinful flesh, and the enemy is pressing in on you and to trying to discourage you. Christian, our good and glorious king, who is perfect in his righteousness and justice, when we sing songs like Jesus paid it all, he paid it all. 
And our Father looks at that sacrifice on the cross and perfect righteousness and perfect justice have been carried out. God showed his glorious love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And even as Jesus died, the earth shuddered at his glory. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 to 51, we read, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The earth shuddered physically at his glory. When Jesus rose from the grave three days later after he died, he was revealing his glory to the world. Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.10, says, Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When Jesus rose from the grave, he abolished death. That is glorious. And 40 days later, he ascends to heaven. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he holds the universe by the word of his power. His glory will be revealed on his return. Revelation 19 tells of Jesus returning on a white horse. He judges in righteousness. Judges in righteousness. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Perfect and righteous fire. And on his head are many crowns. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the, and the name by which he is called is the Son of God. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them perfectly and righteously, by the way, with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh are written his names, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Glory. God's glory compels the Christian to rejoice today because of our present status as redeemed. We were purchased. Friends, listen to this. We were purchased by the very king we rebelled against. And we were purchased by his blood. And God's glory compels the earth to one day rejoice because it has ultimately and finally been delivered from the curse of sin and death when Christ returns. Friends, we have such a glorious and righteous and good king. In verses 7 to 9 of Psalm 97, look with me there, we see two responses when God's righteousness is proclaimed and displayed. The first response is from worshipers of image, images. We see that they're put to shame. Why shame? Of all the emotions that could have been written here, it's shame. Why? Well, let's examine why a person would worship an idol in the first place. When you look at idolatry, there are a number of different reasons that people would worship something. People worship false gods for protection. I think one of the things we can look to to examine modern idolatry is Hinduism. So I'm going to use some examples from Hinduism. So, in Hinduism, Vishnu is worshipped for his protection. People worship false gods for healing. So a Hindu might pray to Danvantari, the god of healing, and ask for a successful surgery. People worship false gods for material success, like Lakshmi, who's the Hindu god of wealth and fortune. 
Hinduism has a multitude of false gods that have been worshipped for a multitude of different reasons. Now, you might be sitting here and saying, well, Ryan, I'm not a Hindu. I've never been a Hindu. I've never worshipped the idols of modern Hinduism or of ancient Rome. But I think there's idols that we need to confess that we have here in places like Philadelphia. Now, they look a little different than the images of Hindu false gods, but they're worshipped for the same reason. Money. If only I have enough money, I can be safe and secure. If only I can buy this car or house, then I'd be happy. Science, relationships, the nation. People look to their nation for physical protection, for wealth and for health. Political parties, if only my political party is in charge, then everything will be all right. Since the fall in Eden, men and women have chased idol after idol for a sliver of glory or joy. And one day, anyone who put their hope and trust in idols and in anything other than Christ will be put to shame. There will be a tremendous regret over a life that was spent chasing after the gifts rather than the giver of the gifts. So that's why I think we see shame here. Romans 1.25, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So that's response number one. Worshippers of images are put to shame. What about the second response? We see it in the response of the people of God. Zion hears, hears what? His righteousness. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. When reflecting on this, Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher, compared it to the scene when the women of Israel came out of all of the cities with songs of joy at the death of Goliath at the hands of David, singing, Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. That's the type of scene that we're seeing here. And Spurgeon remarked that as the women of Judah sang of David's victory over the Philistine, so shall they sing the triumphs of the son of David, Jesus, over sin and death. Those are the two responses juxtaposed against each other, contrasted against each other. Worshippers worshipers of idols, shame. Worshippers of Christ, rejoicing. The Lord's righteous and final judgment will either cause you, friend, to hang your head in shame, or it will cause you to lift your voice in joy. Notice the comparative language here in verse, verse 9. Lord, you are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. As we saw in verses 2 to 5, God's glory compels us to worship and acknowledge his singular superiority. But it's not only the physical manifestation of God's glory that causes us to worship. It's his righteous judgment. Every eye will see Christ exalted and will proclaim, and every mouth will proclaim his sovereignty, and every heart will know that God's judgments are just and fair and right. 
Finally, in verses 10 to 12 of Psalm 97, we see a call to respond in the present. Perhaps you're here today, a friend has brought you, or you're a student at the local university, and you've stumbled into this room today, and you are not a Christian. I want to encourage you to stop and look at the glory of God displayed in the pages of the Bible and visible in our world. Examine the claims of Christianity about Jesus. See, we believe that Jesus came to earth and that he did everything that the Bible says that he did in his earthly ministry. We believe that he died and that he rose three days later and he ascended to heaven where he reigns today. And we believe that he will return one day and will judge every human being from his righteous and just throne. And we believe, along with Scripture, that if you confess that Jesus is Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved from the penalty of your sin. That is a free gift offered to you. See, the world bows to false idols. They concoct all of these religious ceremonies thinking that they can earn the favor of God, whatever God they worship, and the one true God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you on a cross to pay the penalty for your rebellion against him if you would put your faith and trust in him. And it's free. It can't be earned by you. How glorious is that? Christian, here today, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we might have a few blind spots when it comes to our own acknowledgement and comprehension of God's glory. I'm going to be a bit transparent with you. Raymond, I hope this doesn't end our partnership in the gospel, brother, but I still find my sin. So I think if we're honest, sometimes we don't glorify God in the way that we prioritize our time. See, when's the last time you've slowed down to consider the glory of God in your life? I'm convinced that in our fast-paced world, We're so consumed with the imminent parts of our life that we fail to take the time to comprehend the glory of God. I grew up and lived most of my life in Toronto, and Toronto's very much like Philadelphia. And we just move in cities at such a fast pace. We're surrounded by industry. There's always something to do next. We've always got to get our kids to something and then get them to something else, and every night we fall into bed exhausted. It's just city pace, even in the suburbs like Westchester, I know. Some of us feel like we're just keeping up with whatever comes our way. We don't have enough time to sit back and look up and gaze and wonder at the glory of God. And friends, that's a problem. I struggle with this with my own life. Second problem, perhaps that you face, I know that I face, is misplaced values. See, when I'm being honest, I struggle in my flesh to pull away from the immediate uh, gratification and satisfaction of the present. As much as I can read about and talk about the transcendence of God, I am so consumed with the present and imminent that I pursue material items or accomplishments that produce, friend, just the tiniest spark before it fades away. I can be so focused on my glory and what I want that I fall in the trap as a Christian 
of idolizing things that are worthless. Leads me to the third problem that I face, and perhaps you, as you hear me talk about my struggle, perhaps you struggle with this. It's spiritual amnesia. We have short memories. See, we do have times where we can walk into church on a Sunday morning and sing of the glory of God and truly and honestly believe every word that we're saying. We can read about the glory of God. We can comprehend in a small way the glory of God as we think about it, and then we forget it. We're utterly captivated by the magnificence of God, and then within a moment's notice, we're thinking about something else. The smallest, most temporal thing comes by, it grabs our attention, and we forget the grandeur of God, and we chase after the gift rather than the giver. Christians, though we've been rescued from the eternal effects of our sin, we continue to daily wage war with our sin, don't we? Having acknowledged our own propensity to struggle in the here and now, how do we respond? How should we respond? Well, the right response to the display and declaration of God's glory are right in this passage. Verse 10. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. That's a good application point. Hate evil. Recognize evil and disdain it because it is the very opposite of what is good and just and right. When we see even the world, evil in the world, don't be apathetic about it. Don't be fatalistic about it and say, well, we, knew, we know this world's evil and just shrug. We should hate evil. Christians should disdain evil. It is good and right to call out the evil we see today. We should decry the evil of terrorist groups who would kidnap Christian leaders in North Africa and force them to kneel on beaches before beheading them. Christians, you who love the Lord, hate evil. It's the opposite of the righteousness and justice that mark our king. Look at the second half of verse 10. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hands of the wicked. Well, wait a second, Ryan. Didn't you just reference terrorists beheading Christians on the beaches of North Africa? Now we're talking about him preserving the life of his saints? What does that mean? What does it mean over 450 years after the death of Latimer and Ridley in England who were burned at their stake for the defense of sound Christian doctrine? It's reported that when the flames were burning, Latimer cried out uh, just loudly, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. And the death of those men and the doctrines they defended did spark a flame of reformation in England. God was glorified in and through the deaths of men like Ridley and Latimer. So what do we do in the face of evil and persecution? As David wrote in Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Friends, when the psalmist says he preserves the lives of his saints, he's not talking about this temporal life. He's talking about our eternal life. We are preserved by our glorious and righteous king. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all 
comparison. Brothers and sisters, our second response today, be joyful. Be joyful. A couple of months ago, I was traveling, just like I am this weekend, and it had been the second week in a row where I had traveled. I was tired, and my family was tired, and we were feeling it a bit as a family. My plane got delayed. I usually try and get home to say goodnight to our kids, but this plane got delayed. I didn't get in from Atlanta until about midnight. My kids were sound asleep. The next day, when the light of the sun woke up our kids, they scurried into our room, one by one. And they, each one of them, when this happens, they, they show their joy in a different way. So my youngest, Regan, she usually yells, Daddy. She jumps in and gives me a big hug. Callum, our son, he's 13. He's too cool for school. <laughs> so he comes in, all tough and reserved but I noticed that his hugs are just a little bit tighter. And Avery is 15. She struggles with anxiety. She smiles from ear to ear, big glow in her eyes, and she gives a sigh of relief because now that daddy is home, everything's okay, even just for a moment. See, our kids go to bed on a night like that, eagerly anticipating when their dad's going to be home because all will be set right. Friends, how do we have joy in the middle of difficult circumstances? We recognize that light is sown for the righteous, and it might not be revealed in the darkness of night where we face disappointment and discouragement, but we look ahead to the joy that comes in the morning. We live with anticipation that what is wrong today will be put right when Christ returns. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. A third response is this, Christian, give thanks. Show gratitude. If you're like me and you struggle with spiritual amnesia from time to time, in the hustle and bustle of life, having a hard time slowing down and reflecting on the glory of God in your life, when you fail to pause and reflect on God's grace in your life, we are not only failing to thank him for his goodness and righteousness and justice, we are also becoming susceptible to the temptation to search for our satisfaction in other things. So be warned. We don't need to look at the world and its answers for safety and security because they always come up lacking. Always. Those things are temporal. The world always leaves us wanting. So when we take the time to look to Jesus, the founder and author of our faith, our thankfulness glorifies him and it inoculates us from the, just the temptation to chase after the world. Our psalm today finishes as it starts, friends, with a call to rejoice. Christian, respond to God's glory by hating evil being joyful, giving thanks, and rejoice. Our Lord is King. As a local church in Westchester, you are an embassy of our glorious King. You corporately identify as citizens as you gather together, and I know that you look forward to the day that our King returns. 
When you gather together like you did this morning, you are declaring his glory to a watching world. As you pray together, as you sing together, as you care for one another, as you sit under the preaching of God's word together, you are displaying God's glory to this community. As you send out some of your best in Stephen and Alexandra to the ends of the earth, you are displaying God's glory. So declare his glory in your neighborhoods. Continue to send out members from this local church to the ends of the earth, calling people to rejoice. The coastlands of Nagoya, Japan, rejoice. The Lord is king. Our king is glorious, friends, so rejoice in the Lord, O righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Let's pray. Lord, all day, all morning, this morning, we have read and sung and reflected on your glory. God, we pray that as we leave this morning and have lunch and whatever else Sunday brings our way, Lord, that we would not suffer from spiritual amnesia, but our hearts would be encouraged by your goodness and your greatness, Lord. Give us opportunities today to share of your goodness and glorious to our neighbors. God, we pray specifically right now for Stephen and Alexandra in Japan as the sun is setting and they're resting uh, their heads on their pillows tonight, Lord, ready for another week of language learning, Lord. We pray that you would use them as emissaries and ambassadors sent out from this embassy to join another, Lord, that uh, they would make your goodness known in the coastlands in Japan. We pray all of this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.